Kentucky worship team. Good morning, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well this morning. If you're new with us, welcome, welcome, welcome to Perfect Bible Church. It's a joy to have you here with us this morning. My name is Dave, as Kelly mentioned. I serve as an elder here. And Tay and I lead a small group in kind of the western part of Fairfax. Before you get to Centerville, we meet on Tuesday nights. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, in our community there. I'm excited to preach God's Word this morning. I just want to say during the announcements, those those graphics for the men's events and the women's events were pretty awesome. I don't know who did that, but kudos to you because, nice job, hey. All right, you can, you can start opening your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a couple on the table, maybe one on the table over there. So if you're fast, you can get it. But it's going to be helpful to have God's Word in front of you as we preach His Word. Just to catch everybody up, so we've been in a preaching series called Living Sent, How the Good News Gets Out. And what we've been doing is we've been taking uh, one of our six pursuits each week. Our six pursuits are our six values as a church. So one pursuit each week, and we'll be looking at them through the lens of Living Sent. And when I say living sound, that might be, people might not understand what that means exactly if you're new. What I mean is we're focusing on making new disciples, so getting the word out to people who don't know Jesus. And so far we've done four messages, so this is message number five out of six. We've done courageous evangelism, fervent prayer, purposeful disciple making. Last week, Mr. Will Johnson did a great job with passionate worship. And so this week we are looking at bold preaching. I want to say from the outset that it's a little bit strange to be preaching on preaching. Uh, And uh, preaching might not be the top of your list of sermon topics you would pick. A lot of people walking around saying, I wish I had more preaching on preaching, but I think God has some things for us this morning. And so would you join me as I pray? Lord, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would show yourself powerful and that you would be present here. I ask that you would be generous with your spirit to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's a restaurant. There used to be a restaurant in Williamsburg, Virginia, and it's called A Chef's Kitchen. It's closed now, unfortunately. Uh, But it's one of those restaurants. Actually, it was the number one rated restaurant in Williamsburg for a while. It's one of those restaurants where there's this dinner class happening. So, there's this tiered seating, and you've got a couple of chefs in front of you, and they're making this multi-course meal for you while they're showing you and teaching you how to make this called multi-course meal. And one course comes out at a time, and there's pairings, and it's just awesome. Tay and I got to go a couple of times. And uh, the menu changed changed every month, and so you could come back a year later and it would be a completely different meal, but one dish was always on the menu, and that is the colonial-style cast-iron skillet cornbread. So the chef's talk, I don't have a picture of it because I didn't want people to just leave and want to start eating lunch. Um, So the chef starts talking about this cornbread, and he's going through the ingredients, and then eventually it goes in the oven, and it comes out of the oven, and he takes the skillet, and he turns it over, and he cuts slices, and he passes it out, and there's this honey butter that goes on top, and it just melts in your mouth. And so there's this following that developed for this restaurant, and particularly for this cornbread on Facebook, and eventually it got nicknamed life-changing cornbread, and so the chef referred to it as that from then on. So I wanted to share about this restaurant because both times Tay and I were there, what happened was there was something that happened during that meal so that when we walked out of there, we were ready and excited and motivated and positioned to go home and start cooking. Right? We wanted to recreate some or all of that meal for ourselves, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our family. Some people in this room have tasted of the life-changing cornbread because Tay made it for them when they came over for dinner. And so, how do they do that? How does the restaurant position you to want to leave and cook? They equip you, they actually hand you the recipes on the way out, and you saw it modeled for you for a couple hours in front of you. 
But as you bit into that cornbread and tasted of the goodness in your mouth, it's life-changing. So you were different than you were when you came in. And so this morning we're going to look at how there's something that happens during preaching so that when we walk out of here, we can feel motivated and positioned and ready and excited to live set. Our big idea this morning is this. Biblical preaching propels us to live set. Biblical preaching propels us to live set. Really simple. My small group likes simple big ideas, not because we're not smart, but because it's really short and easy to remember. So that's a big idea this morning. I want to show you that from Paul's sermon in Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 16, but a little bit of background for what happens in the first 15 verses. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are going from city to city, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're making disciples. And then they get to Thessalonica, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're making disciples. But some of the Jews get jealous, and so they form a mob, and that's not good. And so Paul and Silas need to get out of there. And so they get in the car, and they drive about an hour to Berea. So Berea is not too far away from Thessalonica, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're making disciples, and the Bereans are weighing what they're saying in Scripture. And then some of the Jews from Thessalonica get wind of what's happening, and they come over, and they cause trouble. And so Paul needs to leave, and so he ends up on a longer drive, a six-hour drive to Athens, so pretty far away. So he shows up in Athens, and the first thing he does when he gets there is he says he sends a message back to Timothy and Silas and says, come here as soon as possible because he knows what we know, that is, doing ministry alone is not as good as doing ministry together. So Paul's by himself in Athens, and we pick it up in verse 16. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This morning we're going to see three ways that biblical preaching propels us to live, and we're going to see that biblical preaching considers the audience, communicates the truth, and connects to the heart. So first, considers the audience. So let's think about Athens. So Athens was this major cultural center, second to Rome in terms of intellect and philosophy, and Paul arrives there, and you get this sense in verse 16 that he's going to wait for his friends to come. He's going to maybe chill a little bit, maybe see some of the architecture. I heard there's some good things to see in Athens. So he's walking around Athens, but he's not particularly impressed at all because what he sees all around him are idols. And I want to connect that a little bit to us. So he's probably seeing like temples and statues and altars and things like that. But I think we need a better definition of idols for us. And so I have that on the screen here. An idol is anything that we trust in or treasure more than God. Really simple. Anything that we trust in or treasure more than God. And so Paul is seeing that happening all around him. It says in verse 16 that his spirit is provoked within him. And this Greek word provoked, it means it's like he was, he was jabbed or, or feeling a, like a stirred up to an emotional response. And so he can't wait any longer. He can't wait for Silas and Timothy. Maybe the ministry conditions aren't perfect, but he has to speak. And so he begins to speak to the Jews, but then he also begins to speak in the marketplace. 
So in the marketplace, uh, verse 18 is packed with information. We get to learn things about Athenians here. Look down at verse 18. We see two kinds of philosophers there, and we see two kinds of skeptics there. So two kinds of philosophers. We see the Epicureans, and we see the Stoics. And I just want to say, if you've taken a philosophy class before, please forget what I'm about to do. Uh, I'm going to overgeneralize these two philosophies. Uh, but what are philosophers trying to do? Philosophers are trying to answer sort of fundamental questions that we all want answers to in life. How should we live? What should we value? How should we respond to suffering? We all kind of want to make sense of things like satisfaction and identity and morality and meaning and justice and hope. And so first, we have the Epicureans. For the Epicureans, we're going to call the relativists. You have to know that they're all about pleasure. So their ultimate good is pleasure, and so you can decide what makes you happy, and you should avoid what makes you feel pain. Uh, self-satisfaction is of, of primary importance to them. They weren't extremists. Like, they were moderate. Like, they didn't want to hurt other people around them or, or be destructive to themselves. But they were pursuing pleasure in life. You figure out what your desires are. You figure out what's going to make you happy, and you pursue that. That's the Epicureans, and I think that's pretty similar maybe to our society today. Second, we have the Stoics. So the Stoics we're going to call the moralists. They were all about not pleasure, but virtue. So there was uh, this proud dignity in their moral sincerity. Uh, as moralists, they wanted to live a life of trying to measure up to a standard. There was a self-sufficiency there. But they're most known for, and they're still known for being dispassionate when it comes to suffering, that stiff upper lip when suffering comes. There's this classic story uh, of London in 1940, and they're being bombed by Germany every single night. It was called the London Blitz. And London put together this propaganda video to describe sort of the resolve of the Londonites because Brits are kind of known for being stoic. And the name of this video they put together was called London Can Take It. London Can Take It. So that's stoicism. You can go on YouTube and watch that video if you want. So we have the pleasure-seeking Epicureans, and we have the performance-driven Stoics, and then we have two kinds of skeptics still in verse 18. Paul is called a babbler and a preacher of foreign divinity, so I think the criticism there is that he's unworthy and he's irrelevant. But despite being unworthy and irrelevant, he actually piques their interest because of what we see in verse 21, which says that the Athenians who live there would spend all their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so, what was something new? Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so, instead of bringing philosophy into uh, the philosophical sphere, sphere, he's bringing news about a person and news about a miracle. And so, he gets the attention of the Greek philosophers and he gets invited to the next level of Greek philosopher idol at the Areopagus. And that's where he gives his sermon. So what does Paul know before he even steps into the Areopagus? What has is, what is Paul learned so far about Athens? Well, he saw idols, right? He saw statues and temples and altars. But he also saw the relativists who were living for pleasure apart from God, which he knows is empty. And then he saw the Stoics who were living for their own performance, which he knows is just exhausting. And then he saw uh, a constant craving for new information. These are the things he knows before he even opens his mouth to preach his sermon. And so for us, you should know that when we stand up here on stage and preach on Sunday morning, of course, we're not preaching to first century Athens. We're not preaching to Birmingham. We're not preaching to Seattle in the 21st century. We're preaching to 
Fairfax in this context, in this place, and we're preaching to the awesome diversity of Fairfax, but we're also preaching to the idols that you and I walk through that door with and the idols that exist in and around this city. If we all wrote them down on a piece of paper, I think we'd have some overlap. I think we'd have money, success, education, power, busyness, comparison, comfort. And so as we preach, and as we go to live sent, we should try to do as Paul did. We should consider the audience before we open our mouths to communicate the truth. And I think we actually see two specific things from Paul here that he does that I think are going to be helpful for living sent. First, Paul slows down to see where people are putting their hope. We haven't gotten to this verse yet. But verse 23, we actually see that, he, he's, that he's walking around Athens, and he stops, and he looks at the inscription on one of the altars that he sees. And so I wonder, are we slowing down enough to see where people really are? Like slowing down to see where people are really trusting, what are they really trusting in, or what they're really treasuring. Nova is fast-paced. We all know this. Like time is scarce, and so if we're going to live sent, we're going to need to carve out time to actually live sent so that we can know people, especially people who don't know Jesus. Secondly, I think we see from Paul that when he sees that false hope around him, he's provoked to speak. He's provoked to speak. And so the question for us is, is when, we, when we see false hope in the people around us that we know and that we care about, do we feel that jab? Do we feel that stirring up to a response? Does it provoke us or are we just kind of numb to it? And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, am I willing to pivot my plans? Because for me, my family will tell you that my plans are another one of the idols that should appear on the list of idols for Fairfax. Are we willing to do something different than our regularly scheduled program when we encounter someone who needs to hear the truth of Jesus? So Paul does that. He pivots his plans. Uh, Athens needs to hear the gospel. They need to hear about the true and living God. And so his words sound really strange to them. So he's invited to speak at the Areopagus. And so now we have Paul's sermon. And as I read this, I want you to listen to how Paul uses the information that he gathered about the Athenians in order to communicate the truth of God. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Our second point this morning is that biblical preaching communicates the truth. That's what Paul just did there. Biblical preaching communicates the truth. Before we get into sort of like what Paul's doing in this sermon, which is actually pretty awesome, I want to zero in on one word 
from one verse. When I was reading that, you probably saw that Paul is describing an absolutely huge God right there to the Athenians, because that's what he thought the Athenians needed to hear about this big God who created everything and rules over everything. This is who God is and what God does. But verse 30 is different, because verse 30 says that God commands all people everywhere. And so, what this means is that this huge God speaks, and He speaks to us. And if this huge God speaks to us, then He speaks truth, and we need to hear every single thing that He has to say. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson grabbed a copy of the King James Bible off of his bookshelf, and he used a razor and glue to piece together, actually to cut out a number of sections of the New Testament and piece together what he perceived was a better version of the New Testament. He called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, and what resulted was a version that didn't include any of this. So all of this was excluded from Thomas Jefferson's new version of the Bible. He didn't include any miracles of Jesus. He didn't include the supernatural passages that portray Jesus as divine, and he didn't include the resurrection itself. Supposedly, he didn't like what he saw in the religious practices of the day, and so he felt like he could improve on God's word. And he's quoted as saying, I have performed this operation for my own use. I don't think anybody's going to go home and start taking scissors and tape and piece together their version of the New Testament. But I was thinking about this story, and I was thinking about how I kind of did something like that in my life. So when I was 19, I had devised a belief system for my own use based on some religious ideas that I had pieced together. If you actually would have asked me my theology at age 19, I would have said, I'm pretty sure that God doesn't exist, and I probably would have stopped talking after that. But here's what I actually believe at age 19. I'm pretty sure God doesn't exist, but if he does, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Because I know that God's loving, I had pieced that together, and I know that God knows hearts, I got in that piece, but I'm pretty sure he thinks my heart is good. And we know that there are people around us, we can see them on the news, and even people in our lives who don't have good hearts. That was my theology at age 19. But if I actually would have opened God's word to hear God speak, I would have seen Luke 18, where there was a Pharisee in the temple who went up to pray, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's exactly what I was doing. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then I would have seen a tax collector in his brokenness and in his repentance cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus would have said after that that the tax collector was the one who went home justified and not the Pharisee. I had pieced together a God for my own use. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, then you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Anne Lamott has a more interesting quote. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Without God's Word, we invent a God to suit our own purposes. And so at Fairfax Bible, it's not going to be news to you, but we preach expository sermons. That word is kind of a big word. It's, sometimes it's ambiguous. What it means is that the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. The meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. And so what expository preaching does is it binds us to the source of truth, and it commits us to saying not what we want to say, but what God says in His Word. Martin Luther says that without expository preaching, we'll reach the point where everyone will preach his own ideas instead of the gospel, and we'll have more sermons about blue ducks. I can say on behalf of the elders that we have no interest in sermons about blue ducks, and we want you to be confident that you're hearing God's Word at Fairfax Bible. And so, because we want to hear all of God's Word, we often preach through books of the Bible, and we preach chapter by chapter, 
There's a story about John Calvin, and he was he was preaching expositorily through Acts. And in 1538, he was exiled from Geneva uh, very quickly. He had three days to leave. And then after three years, he was invited back to, I don't know how he came back, but he eventually came back to Geneva, and he's returning to his congregation, and they were, of course, eager to hear what was happening for those three years when he was gone. And so this is what he said when he returned to the pulpit. He said, When I preached for the first time to the people, everyone was very alert and expectant, but entirely omitting any mention of those matters which they all expected with certainty to hear, I took up the exposition exactly where I had stopped in Acts. We need to hear God's Word more than we need to hear anything else. So one of the things that we do in our preaching, you probably notice this, is we add some guardrails sometimes, because we want to ensure that we're preaching expositorily, and so we have big ideas. Right, the big idea is the main point of the sermon. It's the main point of the passage, and then we have two or five, often like two to five points we pull from scripture. And then you'll have, you'll see the verse references in parentheses. If you're like me, you love parentheses because those parentheses show you that 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 point right there is anchored in God's word, and then I can go and read God's word, and I can find that point in there. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. He says, "Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." Listen to what he says right now, right after this. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So if we're going to live sent, we've got to get God's word in us so it flows out of us. We've got to get God's word in us so it flows out of us. Without God's word in us, we can't live on mission and we won't live on mission. Without God's word in us, when we say love Christ, love sent, it's going to mean nothing. Without God's word in us, something else is going to flow out of us. And that leads us to what actually, what Paul's actually preaching. Like, what is it that flows out of Paul in Athens? I think we see two main things. I think we see Paul telling of God's glory and Paul telling of God's story. And so we talked about how when Paul speaks to the the Athenians, he, he speaks of a huge God, because that's what the Athenians need to hear. Verse 23, he sets it up. He says, the unknown God you worship can be known. And then he tells of God's glory. Listen to this, verse 24. God created everything. He's ruler over everything. He's outside of time and space. He's self-sufficient. He gives us everything we have, including life. He's not sovereign over all. He he is sovereign over all human history. He's not far from us. He can't be made from human hands. God's glory. Athenians, God is the one who's worthy of your worship, and he's bigger, and he's better than anything you've got. And then he speaks of God's story, the story of the gospel. God created us in his image. He made us to seek him and find him. We ignorantly did not seek him and we lived for ourselves. Jesus, who came as a man and as divine, will be the judge on the appointed day. He commands everyone to repent. The proof of all this is that he rose Jesus from the dead. God's glory and God's story. How do you think the Athenians felt? Like, we know a little bit about them now, right? How do you think they responded to this message. They spend their time in the marketplace trying to determine right and wrong, trying to determine virtue and value. They want to be the ones to decide which God of the day to worship and which philosophy to follow. They want to put themselves in the place of God and they want to use a razor and glue to piece together their own truth for their own use. First century Athens, 21st century Fairfax. Neither of those places, I think, would have much regard for God's glory and God's story. But I want to bring it a little bit closer to us. Modern cultural Christianity, I think, is no different. Listen to this quote from Colin Smith about modern cultural Christianity. He says, Cultural Christianity offers a deluded gospel that's centered around self and says, God loves you, and all you have to do is say yes to him, and you'll be safe and secure and blessed. And so people say yes to God, and they spend the rest of their lives resentful or irritated because God hasn't made their lives the way that they want them to be. 
cultural Christianity invents a God whose purpose is to serve us and to make our lives how we want them to be. How do we know if we're doing that? Like, how do we know if we've invented a God to serve our own purposes? Here's a question I think is going to be really helpful to ask ourselves every once in a while. It's this. Is God primarily useful to you, or is God primarily beautiful to you? Is God primarily useful to you, or is God primarily beautiful to you? If you're not sure how to answer that question, your prayer life might be a hint for you. Psalm 23 is one of the most beautiful passages. We all know Psalm 23, right? God's love for and care for us. Verse 1, He's my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness. But when we get to the end of verse 3, we find out why God is doing these things. We find out His motivation for these things. Why does God do this? Second half of verse 3, for His namesake. We heard this three weeks ago. You guys remember Psalm 67, verse 2, when Pastor Hank preached? It's the same deal. God's motivation behind you, His shepherding you, His provision for you, His care for you, His steadfast, unrelenting love for you. Isn't that you are so great? It's that He's so great. That His name might be known, and it's for His glory. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through Him and for Him. Listen to this challenge from John Piper. This, when I read this, I had, to, I had to read it five more times. This, this got me. Maybe it'll get you. It says this. Do you sense God's love for you more when he makes much of you or at great cost to himself he frees you up to make much of him? Do you sense God's love more when he makes much of you or when at great cost to himself he frees you up to make much of him? We exist to reflect God and to enjoy God and his glory. And when we preach and when we live sent, we want to do as Paul does. We want to put God's glory and God's story on display and we want to get God's word in us so that it flows out of us. Our third point this morning is that biblical preaching connects to the heart. Biblical preaching connects to the heart. This is where... uh, the God, we look to connect the gospel to where people actually are. So Paul gathered information. He considers his audience. But you have to see what Paul does when he communicates the truth. This is absolutely masterful what Paul does. Verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then in verse 28, he quotes an ancient Greek philosopher who said, In him we live and move and have our being. So that poet and that philosopher that he quotes is a guy named Epimenides, who was around 600 B.C., so like 600 plus years before. And that quote, for in him we live and move and have our being, that was referring to Zeus. And so here's the story of Epimenides uh, around 600. So there was this plague that was happening in Athens, not COVID, presumably. And uh, they sent a, Athens sent a messenger to Crete. So Epimenides, this, this philosopher and poet, was hanging out in, in Crete. And they asked him to come and try to help them in Athens to get rid of this plague. And so we've got this quote from Diogenes Laertius. I worked on that pronunciation. I think it's right. And his book, he wrote this book, Diogenes Laertius wrote this book in, like, the 3rd century A.D. It's called The Lives of the Eminent Philosophers, and he says this about Epimenides. He said, he came in the 46th Olympiad, purified their city, and stopped the pestilence in the following way. He took sheep, some black and some white, and brought them to the Areopagus, and there he let them go, whither they pleased, instructing those who followed them to mark the spot where each sheep lay down and offer a sacrifice to the local divinity, and thus it is said the plague was stayed. Hence, listen to this, even to this day, altars may be found in different parts of Athens with no name in 
inscribed upon them which are memorials of this atonement. So Epimenides tells them to release sheep, and wherever the sheep happens to lay down, that's where they're going to make a sacrifice and atonement, but some places they lay, they lay down, there was no local divinity there, and so they end up building these altars to unknown gods. And so Paul is standing in the same place in the Areopagus, possibly pointing to the same altar, saying, uh, you've worshipped this unknown God who once saved your city back then, and I'm here to tell you exactly who he is. And not only that, but those atonements and those sacrifices you made for sin are a puny shadow of the once and for all atonement made for you by Christ to satisfy the wrath of the true and living God on your behalf. God is bigger and God is better than whatever you have, and he's coming for your heart now. So what preaching does is it tries to connect the truth of Scripture to the cultural moment, because the cultural moment is where our hearts are hanging out. When, when I was 19, so back to me being 19. So I was 19, and Tay and I were friends. We weren't dating yet. She was a believer, and I wasn't. And she found out something about me. I was terrified of flying. So a few weeks later, uh, she comes up to me in God's timing at just the right time, and she says, Dave, if you knew that your plane was going down, would you know for sure where you'd end up after you die? I will never forget her asking me that question. My 19-year-old theology didn't give me any assurance of where I'd end up after I die. I'd find out a little bit later that I could be as sure as what we see in verse 31, as sure as the resurrection itself where I'd end up after I die. But what did they do? She considered the audience. She communicated truth in a way that connected an abstract idea to my heart, and it became real to me. And so if we're going to live sent, we should try to do that if we can. We should look to connect the gospel to where people really are. Lastly, we're changed by biblical preaching so that others can be changed. So Paul preaches a sermon. We get to verse 30. He calls the Athenians to repent and turn to Christ. But how do the Athenians actually respond? Let's look at verse 32. This is our last section. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what was the response from the Athenians? The actual response from Paul's brilliantly contextualized sermon filled with truth. One, they mocked. Right? So the skeptics still see Paul as unworthy and irrelevant. Two, some said they're willing to hear more, right? So the information seekers, they just want information. But then three, some were changed. So we can't miss this, right? Same sermon, three responses. And so how preaching changes us, it's up to the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says that the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon isn't preparation or picking the right passage or pointing out the right points. The, good, the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is the Holy Spirit. I think a church like ours, there's a temptation to think that if we walk out of here with some really beautiful, well-organized notes that we can apply during the week, uh, then that's all that matters. That determines whether it's a good sermon or not. But I think that that's, if that's all we think about, I think that we're missing something that's happening during the 30 to, 30 to 40 minutes where preaching is happening here on Sunday morning because the Word of God is actually changing us as we hear it. Revelation 12.2 says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so the, when the truth of the gospel gets in us, the lies of the world get kicked out of us and our minds are renewed and we are transformed. So as we're sitting in this room and Christ is being preached, the Holy Spirit is 
systematically and supernaturally rearranging our priorities and our affections to align with God's glory and God's story. Kathy Keller is Tim Keller's wife, and she's, this is a quote where she's talking about Tim Keller's preaching. So when Tim Keller preaches, this is what she said. She says, in the first part of your sermon, when you're laying out biblical truth, it's a good Sunday school lesson. People are taking notes. It's good learning. But until you get to Jesus, it's not a sermon. But when you get to Jesus, everyone puts their pencils down. Instead of feeling like we're walking, now it feels like we're flying. Before you're working on the heart, but when you get to Jesus, you begin working on, sorry, before you're working on the head, when you get to Jesus, you begin working on the heart. So we don't know much about Dionysius and Damaris, but we know that they encountered Jesus and that they walked out of there with hearts that were changed. And so when the gospel impacts us during preaching, it's like biting into a piece of life-changing cornbread and tasting of its goodness. And so we walk out of here ready and motivated and encouraged and excited to speak about what happened to us so that others can be changed as well. It's awesome when God changes our hearts, right? You've, you've seen that. You've felt that. But the second that that change happens in you, we immediately become a conduit and a channel for that same change by the power of the Holy Spirit to occur in other people's lives around us. We're not, we can't change hearts, but we can say, man, you got to see how my heart was changed. So biblical preaching connects to the heart, and I just want to bring it all together. So biblical preaching propels us to live sent. It equips us. It models for us. It changes us, just like a chef's kitchen does. So that when we leave here and we interact with people, we can consider the audience, and we can communicate the truth, and we can connect to people's hearts. We often say, what does this mean for Monday? We're going to do what does this mean for Sunday, right? I think it means this. I think it means come in ready to be launched out. Come in ready to be launched out. Listen to this quote from John Stott. He says, We must allow the word to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Wow. We might need to prepare our hearts if we're going to walk in here and be confronted and disturbed and undermined and overthrown. Our worship team, the worship team can make their way up. Uh, one quick way that we can sort of prepare our hearts as we walk in here on Sunday morning, and it might seem counterintuitive, but consuming God's Word throughout the week actually makes you hungrier to consume more of God's Word on Sunday morning. Do you believe that? So last November, there was a conference at Mission Church, Lancaster, and uh, multiply conference, and some of us got a chance to go to that. And it also happened to be at the height of our pastor search. And so it was one of those weeks where I, I can't tell you how many sermons I listened to during that week. Uh, but I have to say, heading into that conference, like walking into that, that building, rather than feeling overstuffed with preaching, I was the hungriest I'd ever been for the preaching of God's Word in my entire life. Sunday morning is a rich time in the Word. You can prepare for Sunday morning by having rich times in the Word during the week. Let's come in ready to be launched out. As we begin to close, verse 27 says that God meant for us to seek Him and to feel our way toward Him and to find Him. But God knew that what we see in Romans 3.11, it says that left to ourselves, no one seeks God. So you have to know this morning that God sought us. Epimenides sent out a lamb from the Areopagus to identify a place to make atonement. But you have to know that God sent out a lamb from heaven. And the place identified to make atonement was Calvary. And at Calvary, rather than sacrifice an animal on an altar there, he sacrificed himself 
on a cross there so that we who didn't seek him could be found. Paul knows that, right? And so he's preaching to the Athenians and he calls them to repent and he says this, Epicureans, will you repent from trying to live for empty pleasure that will never satisfy and will you turn to the one who gives himself as your ultimate pleasure? He says to the Stoics, will you repent from trying to live up to a standard that you can never meet and turn to the one who from the beginning accepts you not based on your performance but based on his performance? And he says to the information seekers, will you repent from trying to live for the endless cycle of new information and turn to the one whose mercies are new every morning. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I want you to know that he doesn't have to remain as the unknown God for you. I invite you this morning to trust him and to treasure him. If you want to hear more about that, come and talk to me afterwards. Come and talk to somebody around us or around you. I just want to close with this. When we were evaluating pastor candidates last year, we had to put together kind of some criteria to evaluate preaching. Uh, we put together 11 criteria to, to, as we listened to sermons, and we kind of ran them through this rubric of criteria. There wasn't a ranking to them, and I'm not going to share all 11 right now. Uh, but there's one that stands out this morning that I want to share with you. Verse 23 says, What therefore you worship as unknown? known, this I proclaim to you. And one of our criteria for evaluating preaching was, does the, does the preacher exalt and adore and worship Christ and incite worship among listeners? Our last quote of the day comes from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this, the goal of a lecture is that people leave with information. The goal of a motivational speech is that they leave with action steps, but the goal of a sermon is that people leave worshiping. Gospel preaching will always have Christ-exalting worship as its aim. So let me pray and let me get off the stage and let's worship this great God. Amen. Jesus, thank you that you promised that when your word goes out, it won't return void and it will accomplish its purposes. And so I pray for Fairfax Bible on Sunday mornings. Jesus, I pray that you would use that time mightily to rearrange our priorities and our affections. I pray that you would use the preaching of God's word to propel us to live sent. And I pray that you would use the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning here to lead us into worship as we seek to trust you and to treasure you. In Jesus' name, amen.